chemistry is, well, technically, chemistry is the study of matter. But I prefer to see it as the study of change. Now, just, just think about this. Electrons, they change their energy levels. Molecules, molecules change their bonds. Elements, they combine and change into compounds. Well, that's, that's all of life, right? I mean, it's just, it's the constant, it's the cycle, it's solution, this solution just over and over and over. It is growth, then decay, then transformation. It is fascinating, really. Well, I'm really glad you're here tonight. Thank you, Chris, for leading us into worship tonight. I like acoustic sets or something about me that's just like kind of that raw, simple, God, it's just us uh, type of music, and I appreciate that. Uh, I also like that video. If you uh, are familiar, it's from Breaking Bad. I absolutely don't advocate you taking your 10-year-old and sitting down and watching the show with them. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but that show is about a teacher who makes some bad decisions and has some crazy life events happen, and he sees some radical life change. And uh, truth of the matter is... Um, I think we all know that life can change for the bad. You know, we, we, we get that. You know, and if it doesn't change for the bad right now, you're going to get old, and it will seem like it's changing for the bad. I mean, that's just, it is the deal. It is what happens. Uh, and uh, the, the question tonight is not whether or not you believe that life can change for the bad. It's whether you believe life can change for the better. As a church, that's our goal, is to share the message that Jesus can change your life and that he can make your life better uh, that's the gospel, that he takes our sin and he makes us new. Uh, and I've been doing a series on Sunday mornings, and we've done a couple of them on Sunday nights. Uh, and we're, we're kind of just, we're trying to make Thrive Night Service kind of similar to the morning service so that people get kind of the same message when they come uh, to, to Burlington. Uh, but do we believe that life can get better? You know, I, I was talking about in, in our series that God wants to change us so that we look like Jesus. Not just to go to heaven when we die, but so that we'll look like Jesus. So that when people look at us, they'll say, man, that looks like somebody who I think Jesus would look like. And we talked about a couple weeks ago when you were here. If you, you might remember if you were here, we talked about kind of the Superman-Darth Vader deal. You know, and those two natures that are within us and how they compete. Uh, and, and some of us here have kind of got to the place where we don't do the wrong stuff we used to do, but we still don't feel like we're becoming like Jesus. And the reason we don't feel that way is because our past failure dominates our present thinking. Are you like that? Man, I am. I, I, I have had 442 diets in my lifetime. I've lost my entire body weight like three times. Truth. I found it three and a half. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's just there. And I, 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 honestly, I can lose 10 pounds in a week, you know, and then it slows down to a couple pounds a week. But then all of a sudden I might lose 15, 20 pounds and I get down to where I'm just into my big clothes instead of my real big clothes. You know, I, my closet's great big because I've got like three or four stages in there. <laughs> you know, and it just, I'm hedging my, but, but anyhow, when I get down to that place, there, there's a part of me that knows, well, and it won't be long before you really start blowing it. 
Any of y'all feel like that? Your past failures dictate what's going to happen to you in the future? Golly, I wish I didn't feel that way, but, you know, I, I, I do. And, and I believe this is the reason some people have trouble seeing their life changes because they go back to that place where I failed before, so I'm going to fail again, and I don't even know why I try. Um, a lot of you don't know how to move past your past. Some of you have a past. Some of you have a long rap sheet, and you have no idea how you're supposed to move beyond that. You know, you believe God forgave you, but you have a hard time forgiving yourself, and this might be a surprise to you. God is a good, good father. He really doesn't have this misery button up in heaven that he likes to push every other day, just, uh, let's get them, get them again. God doesn't do that. He's not like that. God desires for you to live in forgiveness and for you to live in freedom. That's, that's his desire for you. He absolutely wants you to forgive yourself and he wants you to live guilt-free. Um, now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't have guilt ever, uh, because guilt has its place in your life. But have you ever noticed how guilt rarely comes in perfect portions? Have you ever noticed that? Uh, it rarely comes to us the way that, that it, it, it should. I, I don't like talking about my kids and negative examples, but I'm going to. Uh, because it fits. I have one kid who rarely does anything wrong. Now, she does a lot wrong, but she rarely thinks she does. You know, she can always spin it to where it's dad's fault, or it's sister's fault, or it's school's fault, or it's her team's fault. And, and I'm like, kid, isn't anything ever your fault? Ever? You know, are you perfect? You know, and then I have another daughter who everything is her fault. I mean, you sneeze. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, that's just the way she is. And I'm much more like that kid, you know, where if I can do stupid things and it bothers me for days, just little stuff, and I feel so guilty about it, um, and I punish myself. And I wonder how many of you are like that. You do little things and you hold on to it forever and you have trouble, like, letting it go. Are any of you like that? Yeah, I am. You know, some of you wallow in, I wish I'd raise my kids better, or I wish I'd have done better in school, or man, I, 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 I should have known better, or that divorce, it was totally my fault, or, you know, I, I shouldn't have quit that job, you know, I, the, these things have brought some of you to to church repeatedly where you're at the place where oh, I'm so sorry God, I'm so sorry God, I'm so sorry God I'm so sorry God and yet you seem stuck in that spin cycle you know you, you, you do something wrong, you ask for forgiveness and, and, and you try to move on but yet that demon keeps coming back in your mind and you remember what you did 10 years ago you remember what you did 15 years ago and you think you've overcome it but it keeps coming back what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at what the Bible says about guilt and we're going to look at, at an Old Testament character who seemed to be able to move beyond his guilt. Okay, so we're going to look at two passages. The first passage we're going to look at is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians are like as different as two books of the Bible could possibly be. You can't get more different than these two books of the Bible. 1 Corinthians is like... 
Paul is talking to this church that's really behaving badly, and he's got like the long ruler, and he's slapping them on the wrist all the time. And it's almost like he enjoys it because he's beating them to death in 1 Corinthians. And, and you get to 2 Corinthians, and it's almost like Paul is saying, oh, wow, I was really tough on you guys. Let's restore relationship. And when we come, I'm going to stand up because I can't turn around and point the screen to you if I don't. But when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, Paul and his band of missionaries apparently has one of the guys who comes back and says, I told you of your long, he told us, Paul's, one of his guys came back and told him, he said, he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me. And, and I rejoiced that, man, he told me that y'all still love me. I beat y'all to death. You know, and y'all still love me, so I'm really grateful for that. And then the next verse, he says, in verse 8, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Now, by the way, that's kind of like my oldest daughter. I don't regret it. I didn't do anything wrong. And then the Holy Spirit kind of like punches him in the ribs. And says, he says, oh, well, I, I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. But then he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, your Bible, when you read this on your own, might say grief or sorrow or guilt. Those are the same thing. They kind of all go hand in hand. And he says in verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, it doesn't take a Bible scholar. You don't need a preacher to tell you that in this verse there's two different types of grief or guilt or regret. You see that? There's a worldly grief and a godly grief. Now, some, when we look at this, some guilt is healthy. Some's not. Uh, so, some is, is from God, and we should feel guilty. There are times you should feel guilty in your life. You should absolutely feel guilty about some things in your life. And that is called godly sorrow. And godly sorrow will lead you to repentance. It will bring salvation into your life. And ultimately, when you have godly sorrow, you don't live this life filled with regret. But there's another type of sorrow that comes, and that's a worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow, the Bible says, brings death. Uh, now, the difference in the two of these is not so much how you feel, because, Jared, if I were to ask you, when you were, huh? What's that? Uh, too fast. Go back a slide. Too fast for Allie. Back one slide. One more? One more. There you go. Cool. If I were to ask Jared, Jared, how come you can't get my notes? Because you're talking to me. <laughs> That's why. If I were to ask Jared, Jared, when you feel guilty, now, yeah, there we go. You're still not there, right? I'll tell you afterwards, Allie. Okay? All right. If I were to ask Jared, Jared, when you feel guilty, how do you know if it's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? How long it lasts? Okay. Yeah, that, 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 maybe. I, I, I've had a lot of people as a pastor ask me that. You know, I feel guilty. Is that God making me feel guilty or the devil making me feel guilty? And I think the easiest answer is this. The difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is not necessarily how you feel. It's how it turns out. 
You see, worldly sorrow, it just makes you feel bad. It makes you feel sad. It makes, it's all my fault. I shouldn't have done this. This is what's going on. Godly sorrow moves you to something good. Worldly sorrow, I, I get depressed sometimes. I get depressed usually like when people don't show up on Sundays. I get depressed, you know, and I, I get depressed like, you know, when Kentucky loses or something like that. Not really. But, you know, I, I get depressed over things just kind of like you get depressed over things. Those down, those regrets. I do something, I feel dumb about it. I do something and I think I hurt somebody's feelings. I had a conversation with a, a person about a week ago and, and that person took it the wrong way, I think. And I was going in my mind and I was, oh my goodness, what have I done? What have I done? Now, that feeling of what have I done can lead you in a couple directions. It can lead you to ice cream. That brings death. You know, if you're a guilt eater. It could lead you to say, I'm sorry which brings life. So the difference is not so much about the feeling, because I think they feel the exact same way, whether it's from God or worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. It feels the same. The difference is what it causes you to do. If you feel so guilty that you never show up in church because I don't deserve to go, I'm not worthy, I shouldn't be there, that's worldly sorrow leading to death. But if you feel guilty and say, man, I've been running from God, I need to go back and say I'm sorry to God and go to church, that's godly sorrow. Same thing different result, okay? Uh, now, my goal for us tonight is to simply learn how to move from living in worldly sorrow and be uh, motivated by godly sorrow. That, that's my simple goal. How you can take what you feel inside, because we all feel it. We all feel guilt. We all feel bad. We all feel like we messed up. How can we take that and move in a positive direction? Now, to do that, I want to think about an Old Testament story. It's in the book of 2 Samuel. If you're following in your Bible, you can. If you're not following, I'll have the verses on the screen. But it's a story about David. David was the greatest king in Israel. He, I mean, David was a talented guy. He wrote music. He played music. Uh, he was a, sh a businessman, a shepherd. Uh, he was uh, a really wise king. I mean, David was a sharp, sharp guy. And, and uh, he had a lot going for him. And the kingdom of Israel was growing whenever David was king, growing a lot. So much so, uh, mighty guy, remember he beats Goliath, wins lots of battles. The kingdom was growing so much that uh, uh, the people in David's kingdom said, you're too valuable to lose. We, we don't want you to, to get hurt in battle. You stay home. So David one night is, is at home, and, I, and my vision of this is he is up on the roof of his palace and he's praying to God and he's looking at the stars and he says, oh my God, you have blessed me so much. What a wonderful world you've given me. And he's probably praying for the troops in battle. God, would you help those troops make it back safely? God, would you, would, would you help them succeed and expand your territory? And while he's up there praising God, in my mind, he's tempted. And by the way, that's when temptation usually comes. Temptation usually comes for those of us who are trying to walk with Christ when we have good days. You know, in my life, on some of the most spiritual high moments is when some of the hardest temptations have come my way. Well, David's up here on the palace roof, and he looks down, and he sees a lady bathing. Uh, they bathed in public there. It was just kind of how their culture did. And he sees her bathing, and he noticed that she's beautiful. And he asked his servants, who is this lady? And they said, well, that's Uriah, one of your soldiers who's out fighting for you. That's his wife. And he says, well, have her come and talk to me. Well, the relationship turns inappropriate, and uh, they have relations with one another, and Bathsheba gets pregnant, and David's stuck because Uriah's gone. Battle might last a while, 
she gets pregnant, people are going to know it wasn't Uriah, and they might put two and two together, and so David does what we all do whenever he sins. He tries to cover it up, and so he has Uriah come back. You know the story, maybe. Uriah comes back from battle, and he says, Uriah, you've been such a faithful soldier. You need to go and spend some time with your wife, and Uriah says, I can't do that. You know, he maybe had that band of brothers thing going on. When I was at Fort Campbell, I saw this. Military guys, they love each other dearly. I had a guy who had twins while he was in Afghanistan. He felt guilty that the Army let him come home for the birth of his twins because he said, my brothers are in combat right now. So this was probably going on with Uriah. And Uriah said, I can't go in there and sleep with my wife. He said, you know, all my brothers are out there fighting. And so the, I'll tell you what I'll do. As long as you want me here, king, I will sleep at the steps of the palace. But there's no way I'm going to enjoy the privileges of living in the kingdom while my brothers are out fighting for it. So that's what goes on. Well, now David's in a real mess because his plan to cover up his sin failed. And so he goes from plan A to plan B, which is plan bad, because he decides that he's going to have Uriah, one of his men, slaughtered. Now, he doesn't do it directly, but he tells one of the commanders, he says, I'll tell you what, when the battle gets hot, really hot, and at the most intense point, I want you to move Uriah in where it's getting sticky. And when it gets real bad, I want you to pull back and leave him there on his own. And in essence, David signed Uriah's death sentence. I mean, that's a pretty bad deal. But he thinks he's covered up the problem, and for a while, maybe he did, but it gets exposed. It's written down in Scripture, <laughs> you know, so we, we know about it. Uh, it gets exposed by the prophet Nathan, too. Uh, but uh, uh, Bathsheba is pregnant. She carries the baby to term. And when the baby's born, the baby's sick, and David immediately puts his sin as a connection to the baby's sickness. You know that. I think the Bible connects the two. Um, and David prays and prays for God to heal the baby, but God lets the baby die. Now, it's in response to this that we learn how David, who messed up with a capital M, it's in response to this that we learn some things, I think, that can help us move past our past. Okay? Let's take them pretty quickly. Number one, uh, well, first, let's go back one slide, if you would. Allie, did you get this? Worldly sorrow brings death. Did you get this one? Accept what cannot be changed. Go back to that. There you go. Accept what cannot be changed. Guys, if you want to move past your past, at some point you've got to realize it's past and there ain't a thing you can do about it. I'd love to go back and fix some of the messes that I've made, but you can't put spilt milk back into the carton. You just can't do it. And you just have to accept that. Notice what, notice what David does. Next verse. Thank you, brother. Then his servants. David, his son has, is dying, and he's been on his knees and begging God, God, would you save my son? And by the way, I've been there. I know what it feels like. My daughter was 18 months old, and she had um, an E... It's not E. coli, e. coli type of strand, and she developed a disease called hemolytic uremic syndrome. Uh, it's a blood disease that affects the kidneys. She lost some of her kidney function. We don't know how much. Praise the Lord that you have 200% of your needed kidney function, you know, and you can operate on about 50%. And so 
we don't know how much she lost, but, for, but about 27% of the kids who get this die. And they diagnosed her after about three weeks of sickness, and we were at Cosair's Children's Hospital, and they came in and told us, we will know in the morning how she's going to respond to this blood transfusion and whether she's going to live or not. That is a long night for a parent, guys. It doesn't get any longer than that. And I remember begging God, God, would you please save my child? God, would you save my daughter? She's such a gift, God. Would you please save her? And I, I remember praying. So I know what David prayed. And, and I got the answer I wanted. David didn't get the answer he wanted. But as soon as he stopped praying, I mean, as soon as the child stopped breathing, David stopped praying. But then he got up and he went to worship God. He took a bath and cleaned himself up. And his servants are watching this stuff. And they say, what gives? What's this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you got up and ate. What gives? Then the next verse, David says, Well, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? And in the very next verse, listen to what he says. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? Yeah, I'll go to him one day, but he's not going to return to me. I mean, isn't that just that he accepted the fact that there's nothing he could do? Um, let me ask you this. What good does grieving over something you can't change do? You can't go back and make your kids little again. You can't erase your rap sheet. You can't go back and make things right with your deceased parent. You can't take back an unkind word you can't undo an affair you can't change these things and I would tell you you should not wallow over something that's in your past and some people do just that they mourn constantly over things that can't be changed and if that's you it, it, let me ask you this question and I just want you to answer honestly is your mourning bringing life or is it bringing death when you're mourning over something that you can't change are you getting better or are you getting worse because of it You can't undo what you've done. You've got to accept that. If you've, have you asked for forgiveness? Well, yeah. Have you tried to make amends if you've wronged someone? Yes, I have. Are you trying to do your best from this point forward? Yes, I am. Well, when you've done all you can do, then you just got to move on. You know, when you've done all you can do, you, you just got to move forward. Now, a lot of people have problems because they don't know where to turn. What do I do? And some people turn inward Oh, I'm so miserable. I'm such a terrible person. I can't believe that they did that. And, you know, and they, all their focus becomes on, on themselves. And this sorrow leads to death. And some people turn outward. They, they go to Kevin, would you please validate my existence? I'm, tell me I'm not a bad person. Tell me I'm not. I know I did this, but tell me I'm not bad. Or worse than that, they go to something outside themselves like a substance or a pill and they just want to numb themselves so they don't have to think about what they did when they were really stupid that time. There's a better way. To turn upward is what we're supposed to do. We're to look to God. Notice 2 Samuel uh, uh, 12, verse 20. Then David arose from the earth, and he washed and anointed himself, and he changed his clothes, and he went to the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. What did he do? He got up and went to church. In the middle of his lowest time, he turned to God. And if we would do the same, God would be a source of strength and peace during our times of pain. Listen, I'm not saying what burdens you is going to quit being a burden. Or quit being unimportant. I'm not even saying that God's going to fix your mess. And please hear this because this is like so huge and important. 
If you have an affair, your marriage might not be okay. It is what it is. If you get yourself so deep in debt that you lose your house and you lose your credit, you might not ever get back to the place where you were at. If you do drugs you, and lose your job, you might have to scrape by at minimum wage for a long time. If you hurt somebody, here's a news flash, they might hurt long beyond you saying you're sorry. If you limit your options, they might be limited for a long time. But if you turn to God, he'll give you peace and there'll be no more of that spin cycle of I can't live with myself. Guys, I don't get a lot of things about God. I'll tell you, I'm up here preaching and I don't understand a lot of things about God. I don't understand how predestination and free will fit together. I don't understand that, how God can know everything and man can freely choose. And I don't get that. That's above my pay grade. But I tell you what, that's a lot easier for me to understand than this. I have no idea why God loves me. I just don't get that at all. I mean, because I know me. I know the dark me that's deep down in there that thinks bad things, that, that wants glory when it's really God's to have, that likes to be liked. I, 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 know that guy who, who, I, I know that guy who's done some really stupid stuff, hurtful stuff in the past. I know that guy. And if I were God, I mean, God just said, whoo, there's the world. He spoke and there's people. He could also say, those people are gone. There's new people. And if I were God, that's kind of how I'd probably handle things. I'm done with y'all. And I'm just making something new. But the Bible says that God loves us in spite of our sin. So much that he sent Christ to die for us. I don't get that. But I'm thankful I got it. And when as a 12-year-old boy, I gave my heart and life to Jesus. Jesus came to live in my life. And I'll tell you, I, don't, I can't tell you I've been perfect because I've already admitted that's not true. But I can tell you this, I've never doubted that God loved me. Ever. Man, wouldn't you love to have a relationship with God where you didn't have to doubt if God loved you? See, what happened is I quit trusting in me, and I started trusting in him. See, all my life I trusted it, or all a lot of your lives you trust in yourself, and you're not good enough for God to love you. But he said, I'll love you because of my goodness, not because of yours. I'll love you because of who I am, not because of who you are. I'll love you because I'm a good, good father, not because you're a good, good child. You get that? So, we got to trust in God's faithfulness. We've just got to trust him. Uh, Guys, I'm going to share with you the end of this. I'm going to move quicker, and I'm not going to tell all the stories I told earlier today, and I want to get back to worshiping our good God. But let me, let, let's move forward to the next verse. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and she bore him a son and called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. As I, as I listen to that verse, I don't want you to think that God replaced his one son with another because if you've ever lost a kid, that ain't how it works. But I do want you to see that God didn't change his past, but he did bring something new into his life. You know? And, and, and our God can take every season of your life and make something good out of it.
You may have failed God, but God's not done with you. You may not go back to the way it was, but God can bring beauty from ashes. And you have a choice of whether or not you're going to trust God. And here's the choice that we all have to make. We all have eyes that get to look at something, and we can either focus on what is lost, or we can focus on what is left. That's your choice. You know, so my advice to you, you want to move past your past? Focus on what's left. And some of us live in the rearview mirror. We have rearview mirrors the size of Texas, and we're looking through a peephole at the future. Scrap that way of living. You have tomorrow in front of you. You have today as a gift from God. You can't change what happened yesterday. You know who knows that? God. Trust Him. My favorite verse, my favorite verse, I've got like 400 of them. That's what they used to tell me at Edgewood. I'd say that all the time. My favorite verse, well, I love it. I love this verse. Listen to what it says. Brothers, I don't consider myself to have made it on my own. And amen, amen to that. But one thing I do know, one thing I do, I got this one down. And here's what Paul says. I forget what lies behind, and I press forward, I strain toward that which lies ahead. I could wallow with the best of them if I looked in the rearview mirror. But I will push forward what God has for me. Uh, I, it's football season, and I've got to tell you my story. Do, do the story? Is it okay? Can I tell the story? It's football. You love my stories? The Darth Vader story. No Darth Vader. Let me tell you a football story. All right. I, I, I'm a football fan. I really am, and it's just the truth. I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a U.K. football fan, which means by nature that my past failure dominates my present thinking. <laughs> We've lost so many times when we were, thought we were going to be good. But, I, you know, I'm going to go to the game on Thursday nights, and I'm way in the upper deck right now, and I'm haggling for lower, season, lower arena tickets. So if any of you are going to be there by yourself, let me know. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> uh, just a shameless plug. Uh, but... Uh, I would really have liked to have been at the 1929 Rose Bowl. 1929, California Bears are playing the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. You know? Uh, Y'all know what happened in that game, right? No? <laughs> well, California was beating the Yellow Jackets uh, three to nothing. It was a defensive game. Nobody could score. Nobody could move the ball. It was this brutal defensive game. Cal was led by this all-American linebacker. His name was Roy Regals. He was awesome. He had tackled everybody the whole game. With about a minute to go in the first half, Regals makes this bone-crushing tackle on a Georgia Tech running back, and he jarred the ball loose. But in the tackle, they wore leather helmets at the time, and in the tackle, Regals gets disoriented, and he's the first one to pick the ball up that's been fumbled. And he grabs the ball, and he takes off running, but he started running in the wrong way, wrong direction. And so the coach of, you know, the, his team, Cal's coach, starts yelling, somebody tackle him! And the coach of the other team was yelling, go, Regals, go! Go, Regals, go! He ran for 65 yards in the wrong direction until one of his own players had to tackle him on the two-yard line. I mean, imagine that. That's why he gets the nickname, if you've ever heard this, wrong way, Regals. 
with just a few minutes, a few seconds to go in the half, Georgia Tech's able to push the ball into the end zone, and they score a go-ahead touchdown, and at the halftime, the score was 7-3. to three. Everybody goes into the locker room, and Regals is down, and the coach gives his pep talk, and, and, and he, he ends his pep talk by saying, all of you who started the first half, I want you back on the field to start the second half. And everybody on the team from Cal piled out of the locker locker room except for Regals who was sitting over slumped in a corner crying his coach went over to him and said didn't you hear me he said coach I've humiliated myself I've humiliated you our team's probably going to lose I'm the laughing stock of the world and the story goes that the coach grabbed his leather helmet and pulled him in close and looked at him in the eyes and he said son You made a mistake. I forgive you. You're still my man. Get out there and win this football game. What's never told about this story, and it's a shame, is that Regals, they say, played like a man who was possessed in the second half. He dominated, and George, uh, California came back to beat Georgia Tech. Why'd he do it? What was the change? Two things. Number one, it came from forgiveness of his coach. And number two, it came from the fact that there was a second half. Guys, you might be past half. You might not even be two half yet. But hear me, if you've got tomorrow, that's what you should be focused on. Let me finish the story of your rise wife. Remember, Jesus came to die for sins. That's why he came into the world. Your sins. You were a mess up. I'm a mess up. But let me tell you a little bit about our mess ups. In Matthew, that's the first story of Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 1, we hear the story. You know where you read it, he begot so-and-so, and he begot so-and-so, and he begot so-and-so. That's what you read if you're reading in the King James. In new versions, it says, and he was the father of so-and-so, and he was the father of so-and-so. What's happening in Matthew 1 is Adam, the first man, is being connected to Jesus, the perfect man. And it's drawing that line between Adam and Jesus. And it says, and Jesse was the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon. And you just don't do this anywhere. He says he was the father by the wife of Uriah. That's not an accident, guys. That was in the plan of God to say, yeah, I know there was mess-ups, but I can bring beauty from ashes. I can bring good from your mess. There's not one of you here who's messed up so bad that God can't use you. I love what this verse says. He goes on to predict that Jesus would be born and it says she will bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus because he came for perfect people who've never messed up. No. He came to save his people from their sins. You want life change? You got trust that God can save you. Yeah, there's some big mess ups in here and I'm leading the charge. But I know this. My God is greater than my sin. And he can forgive me. And he can use me. Just like he can forgive and use you. What we're going to do right now is we're going to have a time where you can respond. 
here at Burlington, they offer communion each week, and communion is basically saying, Lord, I'm, I've messed up so bad, I need your blood to cleanse me. Now, the, the cup and the juice doesn't cleanse you. That's a symbol that you believe Jesus has. We take the bread to remind us that Jesus was broken for our brokenness. Maybe you're here and you want to take tonight. You can. You can bring your offering tonight. That's something that we do at this service at this time. Some of you might just need to come to the altar and say, God, I've sinned, and I've sinned bad because I've held on to my wrong like it defines who I am. Guys, I'm defined by what Jesus has done for me and my trust in him. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm a bad sinner, but I'm forgiven. Maybe you want to come to the altar and just say, thank you, God, for forgive me. And maybe you're here tonight, and you really don't know if you've been forgiven by Jesus. I'd love for you to do something, maybe a little strange. I'm going to stand here at the front pew, and won't you just come up and stand beside me and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you a minute. I'd like to know how you received forgiveness from Jesus, how you knew that he loved you. I'd be glad to talk to you tonight if you need to talk. We're going to stand right now and sing. If God speaks to you, won't you come?